One in two women wear the wrong foundation. Are you? Time to upgrade. Il Maquillage is the boldest new brand in beauty. With 20,000 five-star reviews, their Woke Up Like This foundation is a bestseller for a reason. Available in 50 shades of flawless natural coverage, all cruelty-free. And with Try Before You Buy, it's risk-free. Take the Power Match quiz to find your perfect shade and try it free for 14 days. Go to ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, strange objects at the centre of the galaxy and rethinking how researchers measure screen time. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Picture our galaxy, the Milky Way, vast arms spiralling away from a glowing core. And right in the middle of that core, in the galactic centre, there lies a black hole called Sagittarius A-star. The galactic centre has been the focus of decades of study as astronomers try to work out how the black hole interacts with the matter around it. How active is it? Is it growing? Now in Nature, a team from the University of California, Los Angeles, have confirmed the existence of a population of strange objects orbiting Sagittarius A-star. Noah Baker called up lead author Anna Trullo to find out more. You spend a lot of time gazing into the centre of our galaxy, looking in the region of the black hole that lives there. Yes, it's not just a black hole, it's a supermassive black hole, so much more massive than regular black holes that have the mass of maybe a few times the mass of the sun. This one is uh, millions of times the mass of the sun. And in this paper, you're reporting this population of strange objects that are orbiting this supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy. Before we get into any more details, what is it that you've seen? In general, around the black hole, there are many, many stars orbiting, but this object that caught our eyes, actually, they are pretty interesting because they are compact, they look like gas clouds, but then they orbit the black hole like they were stars. They stood out between all this stuff that is in the galactic centre because they look like uh, clouds but behave like stars, basically. How are you seeing these things? They're incredibly far away and black holes are notoriously hard things to, to look at. What is it that you're using to, to study these objects or to find these objects? So what we do is look in the infrared, uh, more specifically in the near-infrared, and we use the Keck Observatory, which is one of the biggest telescopes uh, in the world for near-infrared. And we use an instrument that is called OSIRIS, which is a, a spectro imager. What does it mean? It means that basically when you take an image of a field of view, for every pixel of your image, you also have a spectrum. So you create what is called a data cube. So you have two spatial dimensions, X and Y, and one wavelength dimension. So that's why it's called the data cube. And this is great because it not only gives you the information of the spatial distribution of whatever you want to study, but also gives you a corresponding spectrum. So you can study the emission line, you can study uh, through Doppler effect, their motion and their physics. 
So what we saw were these uh, very compact objects that were emitting in the, in the gas emission line. So an emission that is usually associated with um, with a gas that is absorbing light and re-emitting it. But since we studied this region for many, many years, we could see the orbit around the black hole. So this is a behavior that usually is shown by stars because a gas cloud will get stretched, will get swallowed by the black hole, whereas a star just orbiting the black hole. Do you have any idea what these things might be? There are many scenarios that have been proposed because one of such objects was very famous in the past called G2 and so there was a lot of speculation on what it could be. We tried to apply these explanations to, to our now grown population of objects and we think that these objects are the produce of the merger of the binary system. So binary systems will be made by two stars that orbit each other and together orbit the black hole. So what happens is that uh, because of the presence of the black hole that has a very huge mass, these two stars that are orbiting each other are perturbed uh, by the presence of the black hole and they get closer and closer to each other. They can start stripping material one from the other and eventually they can merge and form a new product. The thing is that during this process, it's it's kind of very messy. You have uh, dust that is shed all over the place, you have gas that can be formed and so you you create kind of a cloak of material that can shield the newly formed star inside. And so this could correspond to what we see with this object that are uh, that show the emission of dust and gas and not the star because it's probably just shielded inside of all these materials. Is this at this point still speculation or is this something that you've been able to model and work out is, is what is happening? Yes and no. So um, we compare with models of how many binaries would merge in the environment of the galactic center and so on. And so the number of objects we find, it's consistent with the number of objects you would expect given the population, age, and the presence of the black hole and so on. So this kind of fits with the models. What we don't have is how exactly the merger would happen because this is the kind of simulation that has never been done because it's very complex and you will need a lot of calculation power that we don't actually have. So you've seen these objects What's next for you to find? Are there many other objects that you expect that you might see over the coming years? Or do you have plenty left to study on the ones you already have? Yes, so there are multiple things. If we believe these objects are the produce of binary merger, the number of objects we find is already kind of compatible with what we expect. So maybe that's all we will find in that region. But what we need to do, first of all, is look at the slightly bigger region because we have been looking very close to the black hole then what we should do is also looking for this type of object somewhere else because this will help us test this hypothesis that this type of uh, mechanism that is forming them happens primarily nearby a supermassive black hole. That was Anna Trullo from UCLA in the US. You can read her paper over at nature.com. Later in the show, we'll be hearing how human body temperatures might be declining. And that's coming up in the news chat. Now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Anna Nagel. Physicists might be known for their high-tech labs, but a team in the UK found that a 17th century London landmark offered the perfect conditions for their research. The scientists wanted to measure nanoscale deformations in a long wire as it twisted, but they needed somewhere where they could hang a 50-metre wire where it wouldn't be disturbed by air currents. They found the perfect location at The Monument, a 60-metre-tall column in central London built in 1670 to commemorate the Great Fire of London. It did mean the scientists had to conduct their research overnight, though, when the attraction was closed to tourists. 
They hung their wire down the shaft of the monument's spiral staircase, then twisted and untwisted it before letting it come to rest. They found a slight permanent deformation in the wire, equivalent to less than nine parts in a billion. This is one of the most precise measurements of its kind ever recorded. You can find that research in Review of Scientific Instruments. Generosity isn't a widespread trait across the animal kingdom. Only certain apes have been found to deliberately help each other out for no reward, including orangutans, bonobos, and at least some humans. Now, African grey parrots have joined the short list of helpful species. Researchers in Germany trained zoo parrots to pass a token through a hole in exchange for some tasty walnuts. They then placed two parrots in adjacent enclosures with a transfer hole between them. One bird had the walnut exchange hole, but no tokens, while the other had tokens, but a blocked walnut hole. The researchers found that the parrots with a blocked walnut hole spontaneously passed their tokens through the transfer hole to their partner. They wouldn't personally benefit from the gesture, but their partner could enjoy a walnut. They didn't bother passing the token when the neighbouring enclosure was empty, nor if the other parrot couldn't exchange it for food, suggesting that the birds understood what they were doing. Reward yourself with that research over in Current Biology. Around the world, concerns are growing that our love of screens and the constant flow of information within them is having an effect on our health. And it seems that most of the stories you might see or hear suggest that it's having a negative effect. Staring at screens is something I've become acutely aware of. I have a little baby back home and I'm conscious that she's become very interested in the phone screen I've caught myself listlessly scrolling through, which is not something that I want to encourage. But what effects are screens and digital media really having on our health and well-being? It's tough to find any definitive evidence either way. This week in Nature, there's a comment article from a group of researchers who argue that the way that data on digital media consumption is gathered needs to be changed if we're to more accurately understand its impacts. One of the comments authors is Byron Reeves from Stanford University in the US. I gave him a call and started by asking him how people's online lives are currently measured. So there are two choices if you're doing research in this area. One is that you can go into a laboratory uh, make a recording, design an experience that people might go through within the context of 20 or 30 minutes. You ask them questions. And so this whole experimentation strategy is useful. The more interesting to most people is go out in the wild, try to figure out what people are actually doing in their normal lives. And this is where the problems really begin to occur because generally the data across thousands of studies are questions to people about what they do with their time. Like yesterday, how many hours did you spend on Facebook? Or this week, have you been a heavy or light user of your smartphone? And in your comment, you highlight that this way of going about things might not be the best way of doing it. It's not the best way. And we've been doing it a long time. And we were doing it when there were only three television channels in the US. And it was even difficult to do then. But think of all the things that you do just even on a smartphone device. And we're in and out of these devices hundreds of times in an average day. 
why do you think a different method is needed to measure what people are doing on their devices? If we don't do something more granular, we're just not going to know what people are doing in relation to the concerns that we have. Uh, so you can name any one of these concerns. If it's uh, processing of news in a political campaign or experiencing Facebook with respect to my psychological well-being, we can know about your well-being and we can know about your politics, but we can't know about what you're doing in media in relation to those concerns without doing something like we're proposing with the Screenome Project. So your Screenome Project, uh, it hasn't been going that long what sort of data are you collecting and, and where are you planning to take it? Well, we started this about three years ago. We started uh, developing technology that we could put on people's devices and that would allow us to unobtrusively collect a screenshot every five seconds to encrypt it, compress it, send it back to Stanford research servers and allow us to get a computer to try to analyze what they're doing. We've collected about 30 million of these screenshots and we're trying to figure out how to do the computerized analysis of what's in these screens from many different uh, kinds of categories and classifications. The way people use their phones is quite personal in many cases. Uh, Are you struggling to find people to sign up to your projects? Is there any reticence at all? Well, there is some reticence, and there's a great deal of interest even among those that do sign up in exactly what we're going to do with these data. We're never sharing these data. We are going through consent procedures that tell them exactly how the data will be collected and stored. And we have institutional review boards that look very closely at our research. It's vetted by privacy attorneys and cybersecurity folks. I think we've, we find increasingly people are getting used to the fact that the companies that are building the products that they use are, are getting these data anyway in, in, in some fashion. And so they're interested in participating in a university research project that helps. Broadly speaking, then, what sort of questions might this very granular approach to data collection help to address that maybe other collection methods have struggled with? Yeah, so the, the questions in the past have really been about large chunks of experience. So how much did you use your smartphone last week? What possible effects could there be versus going in and taking a look at exactly what you were doing. If you were turning your phone on and off 500 times a day to get a quick hit of excitement, looking at a post or something, doing whatever you are in these small little chunks of of experience, that's a very different kind of an effect. That actually might be more interestingly related to something like uh, psychological addiction than information about uh, general use over the course of long periods of time. So you get different questions when you're able to get a better microscope that can zoom in. Is there the concern, though, that maybe with the amount of data that projects like these are able to encapsulate and to record, if there's such granularity between people that maybe we run the risk of missing the wood for the trees and, uh, and it becomes difficult for policymakers or public health officials to make broad policies based on usage and what have you? Yeah, that's a good question. We've got a real problem with respect to your question, because the answer is that a lot of the use of this technology is quite idiosyncratic. And as researchers, and just as anybody commenting on these problems, our tendency or our desire is to try to abstract something we can say about everybody and really look at these cross-sectional or subgroup averages. What we're finding, though, is that there's so much content and so much you can do with these devices, it really is, when you think about it, it's not that unlikely that people would have 
very different routes through all that all that information. And that's what we find when you actually look at the screenomes for th these records of moment by moment changes, that people really do have different content that they're interested in. They have different paces, different rhythms. And of course, well, our interest is to try to say something that can be abstracted for large groups of people. But I think one of the lead stories so far is everybody's really different. Well, you've collected a huge amount of data already. And what has surprised you about how people use their devices or how they look at screens? What surprises us most is when you just sit there in the research lab and go frame by frame through a smartphone day for an individual. It's how much different kinds of content are tangled together in short bursts of use in ways that we could never have anticipated. So this is the most surprising thing. You find somebody on their smartphone. One of the tabs is a video conference for a work group. You quickly go out of that and send a text message to a, a, a spouse or a kid. Uh, you check the news and the sports. You might look at pornography. You might do something that you shouldn't be doing. At the same, but you're quickly going in and out of all these radically different forms of content. All these things are just getting a chance to influence each other within a relatively small amount of time. Having seen these data then, do you think it's affected how you've used your devices and things like that? Um, has it changed your behaviour in any way? Yes, all of us. I mean, there are a dozen of us in the lab that talk about how it's affected our own uses. First of all, it's made us realise that we're not that different than the people that we're looking at. That when we're working on the screen writing a paper, we're, we're spending two or three minutes uh, writing a great couple of sentences, then checking the news and then checking a Facebook post and then you know back in 10 seconds to the next paragraph and a little bit more excited or a little bit less bored. And just realize that these are, these are interesting threads that we're able to piece together now that we never had the opportunity to do. That was Byron Reeves. You can read his comment article over at nature.com slash news. Finally on this week's show, it's time for the news chat. And I'm joined in the studio by Nisha Gaines, Nature's European Bureau Chief. Nisha, hi. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining me. So as always on the news chat, we've got two stories this week. And for our first, there's a report that human body temperatures are declining. Yeah, that's right. We have got a story on a really interesting study that has looked at lots of data, including data that goes back all the way to the 19th century. And it has concluded that bodies are getting colder than the textbook figure of 37 degrees. And that, that's a figure everyone knows, 37 degrees. But how did we get to that in the first place? Yeah, that's right. And there's a little bit of a story around this this 37 degree figure as well, because it's not totally accurate. It's a number that was determined in 1851 by a German physician. And he took millions of measurements and decided that normal body temperature was 37 degrees. But of course, thermometers were rather different then. They were rudimentary. And several studies since have determined that bodies are probably a bit cooler than that. So there's obviously been a bit of a measurement issue and things have got more accurate over time. But this new study is suggesting that despite that, body temperatures do really seem to be declining. Yeah, that's right. So the authors address this issue of measurement. They look at three different data sets. One of them is really old and interesting. It's from uh, veterans of the American Civil War. And then the later data sets are from the 1970s and, and roughly the past decade. And so to address this issue of measurement error, 
the researchers looked within the Civil War data and they found that people who were born in earlier years tended to have higher temperatures than those that were born in later years, even when their body temperatures were measured, you know, in the same year and probably with the same technology. So they say that that suggests that improvements in thermometer technology aren't the reason for this declining trend. And the researchers say that they show quite clearly that over these decades, body temperature has dropped and they determine that it's dropped by about 0.03 degrees centigrade per decade. Do they have any ideas why the temperatures might be declining? Yes. So the, the reason that they put forward is that in the olden days in the 19th century, people were living with much higher rates of chronic disease. They were living with things like tuberculosis and gum disease. And these are things that provoke inflammatory responses that tend to elevate core body temperature. And because of progression in in medicine and society, those sorts of chronic diseases are much less common these days. So that's the reason that they say that bodies are likely to be cooler now than they were 150 years ago. So is this now resolved? Do we know what body temperature is? Do we have a new textbook figure? So this study hasn't necessarily put forward a fresh figure for what body temperature is. We can draw on uh, these previous large studies that say it's around 36.6 degrees. But it's more just this interesting sort of idea that they have slowly been decreasing over the over the centuries and probably, you know, could continue to decrease. But I understand that not everyone is convinced by this study's explanation. Yes, of course, there are detractors that say they aren't quite convinced by this result. One says that there are many variables that are unaccounted for. For example, in this in this civil war data, it's not noted whether the temperature was taken uh, orally or in the armpit, and that that is something that could affect the results. Um, but the authors of the study, they counter that, you know, people have changed over the centuries. We've gotten taller, we've become fatter, and these are all things that could affect body temperature. So we'll have to take the temperature of this research in the future and see if we've got a new textbook answer to body temperature. But for our next story, this is actually something we talk about a fair amount, research culture, the environment scientists live and work in. And there's been several surveys and reports that have painted this environment in a pretty poor light. And now the Wellcome Trust has done their own. What can you tell me about this latest survey, Nisha? Yeah, that's right. It's something that uh, we're reporting on very regularly because there are, frankly, a lot of reports from scientists around the world that say research culture is is something that is becoming increasingly difficult to do work in. And that is a feeling that is reinforced by this, this large survey that has been done by the Wellcome Trust that, frankly, paints a damning picture. And it says that, you know, this environment that scientists work in and are, are producing science in is highly competitive, it's often aggressive, and that all All of this is something that is damaging the quality of science. So what explicitly are scientists' concerns that have been raised in this? So this is a really broad survey that uh, spoke to 4,000 researchers done by the Wellcome Trust, which is a massive funder of research around the world. And the the findings that they present are unfortunately quite familiar things that we've heard from researchers in other surveys, as you say. It's uh, things like high pressure, long hours, you know, a lack of job security, and often reports of, of poor mental health, anxiety, depression, harassment, bullying. So quite serious issues that are being presented by large proportions um, of researchers. And there's another big 
issue that researchers talk about. And it's this dominance of metrics and performance indicators, things like the impact factor of the journals that they publish in, that they say funders and institutes put a huge amount of emphasis on in a way that reduces morale. And as you alluded to there, scientists have actually reported having mental health issues as a result of these pressures. Yes, that's right. That Half of these respondents say that they have either wanted to or have actively sought help for anxiety and depression. And that's a really, you know, that's a that's a huge proportion of, of researchers. And it's something that we know chimes with our readers when we write about this. We get a large response from, from readers and listeners. Uh, so it's a big issue that is coming to light in the research community. And is Welcome responding in any way to these results? Yes, that's right. Uh, this is a survey that's been done by Welcome, but we should be clear that this isn't something that applies only to Welcome researchers. Uh, the, the survey spoke to thousands of researchers across the world. But it is part of a broader initiative by Welcome, which they launched last year, and it's called Reimagining Research. And they're looking for ways to make the research enterprise essentially less damaging. You know, that there have been so many reports of this hyper-competitive uh, environment and toxic power dynamics and they're looking for a way to reframe that. So this is a survey that will help them to do that. It will help them to develop ways in which they hope to change the research culture, and they will be looking to develop a plan of action in the next few months by talking to researchers, talking to universities, and discussing the issues that have been raised by this survey. Right, well, this is obviously a pervasive problem, but hopefully we are starting to work towards solutions. Thank you so much for joining me, Nisha. Thank you. And listeners, for more on those stories, head over to nature.com slash news. That's all we've got time for this week. If you'd like to get in contact with us, why not send us a tweet? We're at Nature Podcast. Alternatively, send us an email, podcast at nature.com. And just before we go, we've had a few people ask if we have transcripts available for each show. The answer to that is yes. You can find them attached to each episode over at nature.com slash podcast. They're usually up by the Friday of each week, and thanks go out to Becca, our editorial assistant, who writes them. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Howe. See you next time. <laughs>